0: If I ask you the question, who are you, like, how would you answer that? For some of you, you might describe yourself by what you do for a living. So you might say something like, I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor, I'm a farmer, I'm retired. Or it might be family-related, like I'm a mom or I'm a dad. Some of you might have gone down the rabbit hole and you look at your family lineage, like you do a family tree kind of thing, and you you trace back as far as you can go. Or maybe you've done one of those, the 23andMe, like the DNA test thing, to see your heritage and whatnot. So like, you know where your ancestors are from, something like that. We are currently living in an age where identity is becoming something that's murky for quite a few people. People have an identity crisis, and they ask the question, who am I? What do I believe in? What do I want to do with my life? The, there are a lot of reasons for these as well. Like, if your identity is wrapped up in your career, then what happens when you lose your job? You might have an identity crisis. If your identity is in being a parent, then you might have a crisis when your kids have left and now there's the empty nest. They come back sometimes. <laughs> I'm always saying that because I went back home because my air conditioning is out in my apartment now. So, <laughs> I just showed up last night and I was like, "Hey, I'm sleeping here tonight," <laughs> and they're <were> like, "Okay." <laughs> so, um, anyway, number of, number of people whose identities are formed around their uh, sexuality and that seems to cause identity crises as well. People are going through these things, they've got conflicts in their emotions, right? They might experience anxiety or depression or self-doubt, self-consciousness, low self-worth. Might be some external struggles or evidence of the conflict, like attitudes or actions that are oppositional to a lot of things. You know, you got unhealthy friendships or an inability to make decisions, struggles with sexual immorality and more. Fundamentally, if we're finding our identity in our roles in relationships within our earthly lives then we're always going to have struggles because there's always something that's going to be better along the way. We're never going to be fulfilled. We're going to chase some idea of success that is not attainable because of that something better, there's always something more. It's like the teacher in Ecclesiastes wrote. He says it's chasing after the wind. It's trying to, like, grab at mist. You just can't catch it. Today, we're continuing to look, or continue our summer in the psalm series by looking at Psalm 139. And so in this psalm, we're going to see how the author, David, describes God in looking at three traits, which we describe with the prefix omni. We've got the omniscience, which is all-knowing, omnipresence, which is always present, all-present, and omnipotent, which is all-powerful. But we're not only going to get a picture of God, we're also going to get a picture of ourselves, but as we are known by God. And hopefully when we're done, we're going to see and embrace our true identity in God. So the first thing we need to do is look at God's omniscience. Anybody ever been to the place in the Smoky Mountains called Christus Gardens, or they renamed it to Christ in the the Smokies, I think. Um, unfortunately, I never made it to the attraction, and I think it's been closed for a couple of years now. Um, but Rick told me about, uh, about it when I talked about going on vacation in the Smokies and in the Gatlinburg area. And I guess it was full of, like, wax figures. It depicted the life of Jesus. Um, but there's one thing that Rick talked about that, that I thought was kind of neat. It's this marble slab that has a depiction of Jesus carved into it. What's neat about this is the way that it's carved, Jesus always seems to be looking at you. No matter where, you're, where you go, it just kind of gives the appearance that Jesus is always facing you. And Rick's got a small replica of it uh, that I, I've seen. It is, it is neat. Um, and, and, you know, for some, that's the reaction they have to it. They're like, oh, man, that's neat. Jesus is always looking at me. For others, a little more disconcerting <laughs> because they're like, oh, man... Jesus is always looking at me. Well, the first six verses of Psalm 139 can evoke a very similar reaction from the reader. There's a verse which lays out, uh, or each of the stanzas of the psalm, they're, they're similarly laid out in the, the stanzas we're going to look at. There's a verse that gives us a principle, and then there's a description or a little illustration about that principle, and then there's a verse or two of application or how we can... Uh, look at our lives with this, and so we're going to start by reading verse one, which says, "You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me." Now, the idea for "searched" is somebody that's doing um, a diligent probe, or or think like a cross examination in a legal case, like you're trying to get down to the root, you're trying to get to true understanding. And when I worked in quality assurance, that's something that we would do when something would happen, when something would go wrong. We, I, I would work to investigate on what like, the root cause of that problem was, so you'd dig down to try and figure out where it went wrong and fix it there. You're trying to get down to the very core of it. And David writes that the Lord has searched him. He's gotten down to the very core of who he is, and the Lord knows him. God knows who David is. He knows his true identity, like who he really is. And then we get the next five verses, which or the next four verses, which describe God's knowledge of David. Verse 2, it says, You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. God knows everything that you do. He sees everything that you do when you sit, when you get up. Not only does he know that, but he also knows your thoughts, which I know for some of us, that's tough. He knows when we go out and when we lay down. All of this is to say that the Lord knows us, knows all about us, Not even that, but he also talks about everything that we say. The Lord knows it. Not just when we say it, but he knows it before we say anything. And you see, we can mask ourselves. We can try and deceive others. We cannot deceive God. It's not going to happen because he knows. David writes that God hems him in behind him before, but what that's describing is protection. The idea is like a city under siege. It's encircled, right? But instead of being under attack, it's being protected. He lays his hand upon you. Think about the story of Job. When Satan approaches God, he says that God has protected Job from harm and that he has put a hedge around him. God knows everything about you, and that can do a couple things to you, right? Like that can be really neat or it can be really disconcerting. But here's how David closes his first stanza of his psalm in verse 6. He says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Basically, David's saying, you know, I can't really wrap my head around this, uh, around that kind of knowledge, which should make sense, right? Because we are incredibly limited human beings compared to an unlimited, infinite God. For David, because God has that knowledge, he knows that God has things under control in his power. The Lord knows David fully and that brings David comfort. And really it should bring us the same kind of comfort as well because the Lord knows everything about you. But he still loves you fully. I'm going to take those dings as good things. (laughs) Anyway, Lord knows everything about you. All your faults, all the good things, all the bad things, and even with all that, he still loves you with that love that we talked about that's from everlasting to everlasting. So let's look at the next trait of the Lord, his omnipresence. At youth group, we always like playing games, and the more that we move around, the better, but of course, during the winter, it's tough to get outside to play, Right? So we'll do something inside. And one of our favorite games, a fallback game that we always do, is called Sardines. And the idea is it's like a reverse hide-and-seek. So somebody will go hide. They'll find somewhere to hide. And the rest of the group waits. And then eventually, when they get hidden, we'll go out and try and find them. And uh, what's different, though, is when you find them, you, you don't call out and say that you found them or anything. You hide with them. And so you're trying not to be the last person that, that finds anybody. And, and we have found over the course of the years of playing this, I'm pretty sure every hiding place there is to find in this building. So when it's my turn, my goal is always to find places that they would not think to look for me. And I, really what I want to do is I want to hide somewhere where somebody can come in and they don't see me initially, and, like, they'll leave. And, you know, that, that's, that's tough for me. But it's happened so many times. It's so good. Um, Last time we played, I hid behind the tables in one of the closets in the foyer. And, uh, yeah, it it took a minute to get out there, out of that. But it was worth it. It was worth it. I tried to hide in the information desk one time. That one hurt. It was still fun, though. But you know, no matter how good my hiding place is, somebody always seems to find me. David asks a question as he begins the next stanza of Psalm 139. He asks in verse 7, he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David's asking, where can I hide from you? And hiding from God, that's been like the natural inclination of sinners since the beginning. When Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes were opened, they were afraid. What they do? Genesis 3, verse 8 says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But could they hide from God? No. Remember Jonah. What he do? He ran away from God trying to get as far away from where God told him to go as possible. Could he run away from God? No. Where can I go? Where can I flee? That's what David asks. And then he answers it in the next few verses. Verse 8, he says, If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. David says that even if he goes up to the heavens, the Lord will be there, which kind of makes sense, right? Like that's where we traditionally think God is, is in the heavens. So yeah, if I go to the heavens, God's going to be there. But then he's like, well, if I make my bed in the depths, you're there too. Now think about that like vertically, right? You're going as high as you can go to as low as you can go. God's there but also think a horizontal element, too. See if it says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, which, what direction does the sun come up from? East, good job, good job. Then he says, if I settle on the far side of the sea, which would be west, because if you think about it, in Israel, the sea is the Mediterranean, Mediterranean is west, and if you go on the far side of the sea, that's as far west as they would think about at the time, and God is even there. So, can't get away from him vertically, can't get away from him horizontally, because you can't get away from God. He is with you all the time. You cannot hide from the Lord. But again, rather than being disconcerting to us, that hopefully would bring us comfort. To know that he is there to guide us and to hold us fast in his hand. David gives a picture of this in verse 11 where he says, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Now, when he's talking about the darkness, what could that be? What is the darkness in your life? It could be sin, enemies, threats. It's really what he's talking about. It says, the darkness will hide me, but... In Hebrew, it can give the sense of the darkness like crushing in on you. Those sins, enemies, threats, crushing you. To the point where even the light seems like darkness around you. But not to God. Darkness is not dark for him. The night shines like the day. And darkness becomes light. The Lord overcomes the darkness in our lives, those sins, those enemies, those threats. The Lord is light and can lead us out of the darkness, illuminating our way. We then move to the third stanza where David talks about the Lord's omnipotence. There's a genetic engineer from the University of Washington named Dr. John Medina, and he's giving a lecture in 1995 about the miraculous human body. And here's how he put it said, the average human heart pumps over 2,000 gallons a day, over 55 million gallons in a lifetime. That's enough to fill 13 super tankers, which are those giant ships. It never sleeps, beating 2.5 billion times in a lifetime. The lungs contain 1,000 miles of capillaries, The process of exchanging oxygen for carbon dioxide is so complicated, as Dr. Medina puts it. He says it's more difficult to exchange O2 for CO2 than for a man shot out of a cannon to carve the Lord's Prayer on the head of a pin as he passes by. Seems pretty difficult. (laughs) DNA contains about 2,000 genes per chromosome. 1.8 meters of DNA are folded into each cell nucleus. A nucleus is 6 microns long. This is like putting 30 miles of fishing line into a cherry pit. And it isn't simply stuffed in, it's folded in. If it's folded one way, the cell becomes a skin cell. If it's folded another way, a liver cell and so forth. To write out the information in one cell would take 300 volumes, each volume 500 pages in length. One cell. human body contains enough DNA that if it were stretched out, it would circle the sun 260 times. body uses energy efficiently. If an average adult rides a bike for one hour at 10 miles per hour, it uses the amount of energy contained in just three ounces of a carbohydrate. So bread is good. That's all I'm hearing there. <laughs> the more bread you eat, the more energy you have, right? right? No, I think that works. I think that works. I think my math is right. Um, <laughs> if a car were this efficient with gasoline, it would get 900 miles to the gallon. It would be pretty good. Human body is incredibly amazing. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that when we get into the next section here, we're going to talk about how God is the one who put all those processes in place. All those systems together. Here's how David begins in verse 13. He says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. David acknowledges the fact that God created him and knit him together in his mother's womb. In his commentary on this passage, Daniel Estes writes, the psalmist, his intricate anatomy points him to the amazing creator. And seeing God's wonderful craftsmanship in his body prompts the psalmist to praise him. And that's what we see as we continue the passage in verse 14. He says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. David starts with the truth that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully would be similar to like fearing the Lord, you know, that sense of awe, not terror. But it's not just fearfully, but also wonderfully, you see. God knew what he was doing when he created you. And I love the next line where he says, your works are wonderful. What works are we talking about? He's got to be talking about human beings. He's got to be talking about us, God's creation. Because in this context, we are his works. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And your works are wonderful. We're part of that. In verse 15, David writes that his frame wasn't hidden from God when the Lord wove him together in the secret place in the depths of the earth. Now, the whole idea here is the idea of concealment because we can't see what's going on in the depths of the earth, right? And and back then, they wouldn't have had all the fancy gadgets that we do now to see inside a mother's womb. There were no ultrasounds or the 3D ultrasounds or whatever. The baby would have been hidden, but not from God. He saw me. He knows me. In fact, the way David puts it in verse 16, God saw me before I was formed, and he knows all the days of my life, the good and the bad. In the last two verses of the stanza, David looks at what this means. He says in verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. You ever try to think about what it would be like to be God? Like, Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey kind of takes a humorous look at what that could look like, um, if you remember that movie. Um, But David just looks at God's thoughts here. He's like, you know, I could take the time, count all the grains of sand on this earth, of which there are many, and your thoughts would still outnumber them. And even still even though the amount of thoughts of God are incomprehensible to us, even still he thinks of us. Even with all his power to create, he still created us. And David says, when I'm awake, I'm still with you. Now, what's David's response to God's omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence? It's loyalty. Loyalty is not an unknown concept anymore. I mean, we're loyal to a lot of things, right? Schools are something that we can be pretty loyal about. I graduated from IU, and I'm pretty loyal to IU, especially in sports, except maybe football at times, because I like Notre Dame too. But I want to cheer for a football team that wins every once in a while. But what that does mean is that I don't like that school in Westloft yet, because I'm loyal to Indiana. People are also weirdly loyal to electronics companies, especially in the early days when you weren't fully invested into an ecosystem. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you had the gaming systems um, that you had like Nintendo versus Sega. You had PlayStation versus Xbox or PC gamers who thought they were better than everybody. Or speaking of PC, you might remember commercials that Apple used to put out that were PC versus Mac Nowadays, you have iPhone versus Android. Which Android users like that they're cheaper, they're more customizable. Where iPhone users, you know, like how the phones are made. And and you know, but if you think about it, like when we're talking about the messages app, uh, when you get somebody who's not using an iPhone, you get that green bubble instead of the blue bubble. It's awful. It's awful. Not that I'm loyal to one or the other. What else are people loyal to you loyal to their country loyal to their political party loyal to their sports teams Loyal to coke over pepsi because that is the proper way to look at it Although what i'm seeing when i'm talking about all of these is like a lot of debates happening And in the next section of the passage david is declaring his loyalty as he talks about those who are enemies of him and of god Here's the intro to this stanza. Verse 19, he says, If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. So It takes a shift here. There are those who David describes as wicked and bloodthirsty and against him and against God. He says that God, you know, if only you would slay them. It's like life would be so much better without them. And let's look at the description of these enemies. Verse 20, he says, They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. You see what David's doing here. Like, he's lining up the accusation against them. He says, they speak of you with evil intent, and they misuse your name. Now, if you know your Ten Commandments, you know that misusing the name of the Lord is the third one, that you are not supposed to do that. And David follows this up by declaring loyalty to God by saying, I hate those who hate you. I have nothing but hatred for them. They are my enemies. So out of his loyalty, David hates the wicked who hate the Lord. Now, that expression of loyalty, it gets shaped a little different. Later on by Jesus. Because instead of hating our enemies, Jesus calls us to love them. Matthew five forty three says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then in Romans 12, verse 9, Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I'm not saying that that's easy. But we can do this because of the relationship that we have with God. David finishes this stanza by inviting God to focus not on the enemies, but on David. And in this, he shows humility. In verse 23, he says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He asked God to search him, to know his heart. He wants that intimate relationship with the Lord. He says, Test me, know my anxious thoughts. He knows that God is the one who can calm them. He says that if there's any offensive way in me, lead me in the way of everlasting. Can you see the humility here? You see the teachability of David. We we cannot be arrogant and teachable. That does not work. But I hope that we can all say that to God. To search me, I want you to know my heart. Uh, I want you to know my anxious thoughts. I want you to lead me in the way everlasting. What we see in these passages is a God who knows literally everything about you, who is always with you, who in his power created you. And what we see is also the intimacy of the relationship that you can have with him. As David writes here, he's talking about all these amazing things that just can absolutely blow your mind when you're trying to understand it. Just the enormity of God. And still, David had a close relationship with the Lord and was very loyal to him. And that relationship is not inaccessible to you or me. God desires to have that kind of relationship with you. The God who spoke creation into being, who actually knows the number of grains of sand, on this earth, or the number of stars in the galaxy, he still wants you to know him and to be with him for eternity. And he will lead you, like David said, in the way everlasting. And we know that way now. And it's Jesus. In John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's why Jesus died on the cross. To pay for what we owed so that we can have a relationship with God. So that we become the temple of God where God's spirit resides. There will one day be a new heavens and a new earth where Jesus reigns as king everlasting. And if you're not following Jesus yet, then I I want to truly invite you to do so. I want you to follow him. We'd love to talk with you about it, and you can talk with me, one of the elders. A lot of people in this church you can talk to about that. You fill out one of those Connect cards, and there's a little line on there that says, interested in salvation, just check that, and we'll, we'll talk to you. We started by talking about identity. Ah, I can be a little murky these days. But I want you to know you have an identity already. Because you are known, you are found, and you are created by a God who loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. For us who have already decided to follow Jesus, we are adopted sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. We are disciples of Jesus but we're also family. That's your true identity. You are a new creation. You have a new heart. You are clothed with Christ. You are sealed with the Spirit. You are redeemed. You are purified. You are justified. You're being sanctified. And you are made complete in Christ. You are no longer a slave but now you are an heir of God inheriting eternal life. That's your identity. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for for that identity. That you have thought so much of us, that you sent your Son to leave his throne in heaven, to come and live as one of us, and to die for us on the cross. And Father, that is, it's overwhelming, really, to think that you would do that. Because I know, I know me, personally. I know what I've done. And you know what I've done. And yet you still love me. You still want me to be near you. And I'm so thankful for that. And I know that there are so many here that can say the same thing. I just, I know that as we spend this time in prayer, that that's what we're doing. We're just saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, we we come to the point in our service where we take the time to remember the sacrifice that was made by Jesus on the cross that perfect sacrifice we take the bread that represents his body that was broken we take the the juice that represents the blood that was spilled shed for us and we just want to take the time to Remember that, and and to praise your name, Lord. Father, it is amazing that as we looked at the the three things—the omniscience, the omnipresence, the omnipotence—that even even still, you know us and love us. We thank you so much, Lord.